from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I, I just couldn't deny any longer that I couldn't open my eyes. I, I had, I think, been in denial for that period of time. And I, I sat in the hospital bed and thought to myself, you know, I really can't open my eyes. I have been keeping a stiff upper lip and ap- acting like I've got this all under control. Um, but, you know, I really, could, I really couldn't open my eyes. And it was, uh, it was, it was a shocking time. One of the one of the guides who I early on loved skiing with the most used to always say um, that it was like remote control skiing hmm. for him, and it is just a kick. I get such joy out of it; it's unbelievable. I'm Sarah Fenske. On July 2nd, 1991, William M. Johnson was on a business trip to Atlanta when he and two colleagues were ambushed by a random shooter. His two colleagues were killed. He survived, but he was left permanently blind. That was 30 years ago this summer, and how William Johnson made peace with that new reality, and what for many of us might sound like a nightmare, is the subject of his inspiring new book, Snowblind. I couldn't put it down, and I am so happy the author is with us today to talk about it. So Bill Johnson, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. I'm so happy to be here. And I appreciate the fact that you enjoyed the book. I definitely did. I, I hope people will check this out. I learned so much. Um, and I want you to, to take us through some of the highlights of this today. Let's start with July 2nd, 1991, since that's where your book starts. When did you realize that you'd been shot? Um, you know, I didn't um, know immediately that I'd been shot. I certainly knew something had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, We were walking down the street, and the attack came from, you know, the rear, and um, so there was no sensation of being being violently attacked, but it simply felt like I got, I'll say, hit in the head with a baseball bat. (laughs) Um, I had heard pop, 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 which, being July the 2nd, I assumed were some firecrackers in downtown Atlanta, Um, but of course... They were gunshots, and as I turned my head, I was, you know, struck and shot right through the temples. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as it turns out, I'm very thankful that I turned my head. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, have, I'm sure been worse damage. It's almost miraculous that that you survived this—a bullet just going through your head. It it really is. It's amazing. Um, you you know you ask when I knew I'd been shot and it was probably some I, I I can't really pinpoint it exactly. Um, a doctor of course told me the whole experience when I was in the hospital, but um, mm-hmm. the immediate feeling, other than being hit in, in the head, was uh, just an excruciating pain in my eyes. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a picture on the a website at uh, authorwilliamjohnson.com from the Atlanta paper, I believe, with me on a on a gurney with my hands over my eyes the the pain of the light was just terrible and i mm-hmm. i knew at the time i was not going to ever see again um and i i had a thought that i just needed to remain conscious and um i would survive that if i lost consciousness i didn't know what had happened to me but i would 
likely be dead. Hmm. And so you understood at that point uh, that you had been blinded by this. Did you have any point, did you have any sense of the implications of that, of, of what it would mean to adjust to life going <clears throat> forward without your sight? Oh, gosh, no. Um, not at all. And, you know, you can imagine I was in shock, I'm sure, and, you know, medical people would know better what kind of shape I was in. That thought was, you know, not, not of course, very well thought out, not very deep, not very conscious, frankly, but mm -hmm. um, no. And as I woke up later in the hospital and, you know, events were explained to me, I, I had no idea what, uh, you know, what it really meant. I, I didn't have experience particularly uh, dealing or working or living closely with people with disabilities of any sort, um, certainly not blindness. And I do want to address something directly because you address this in the book. You don't use euphemisms. You make a point of saying you are blind. Why do you prefer that to some of these vague words we might use like lost his eyesight or visually impaired? Yeah, um, you know, I, I just think it describes exactly what I am. Um, and as, as you read, I had that feeling immediately in the hospital. People that I knew, friends, family, whoever would come and and they would, you know, always, of course, make some reference to, oh, you know, the, the uh, when you could, well, they wouldn't say when you could see, but, you know, they mm -hmm. would say something about visually impaired or lack of sight or this or that or whatever. And um, I don't know, it just felt normal and natural to me to just confront it head on. And hmm. I would generally then kind of come up with a sentence in response to them and use the word blind in it. and uh, Get them comfortable with it. Yes, to try to get them comfortable exactly, and it and it sounded harsh. It sounded harsh to me, and I think it did to them as well. But um, I'm I, th I think it was the right thing. Hmm. So, Bill, I want to make clear for for our listeners to orient them in this story. When this happened, you were in a more complicated situation than many people might have been. You were divorced. You had young kids, kids that were very precious to you, you wanted to see going forward. But you lived alone. You were also used to traveling for work, just all these things that, that made it even harder to be blind. When did you reach the point of realizing, wow, your entire life as you knew it had just changed overnight? Well, it was, um, you know, really shortly before I got out of the hospital, I've, I've, I wrote that, you know, that during the time of, uh, I was in the hospital a total of about three weeks. Some of that I was unconscious. Um, and, and much of it I was, you know, and reasonably conscious, medicated, but, you know, dealing with nurses and um, people were doing things for me. Somebody else always had an idea that to get me to physical therapy or to a... Uh, uh, ophthalmologist or, you know, whatever, the medical care, somebody else was thinking about all that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I really wasn't focusing too much on the future. Hmm. There, there was a day when I, I think it kind of crashed in on me, which was fairly emotional for me. Um, you know, and, and, and fortunately, I, uh, I, I just couldn't deny any longer that I couldn't open my eyes. I, I had, I think, been in denial for that period of time. And I, I sat in the hospital bed and thought to myself, you know, I really can't open my eyes. I, 
have been keeping a stiff upper lip and acting like I've got this all under control. Um, but you know, I really could, I really couldn't open my eyes and Mm -hmm. it was, uh, it was, it was a shocking time. So your acceptance seemed to come relatively early and, and without a lot of cursing God or, or self-pity. You, you know, you were just determined to go on with things. And I was so shocked at the point where when they, they finally let you out of the hospital, you know, you were sent back to St. Louis after some time at Barnes. Um, you were able to move home. And you decided to move home by yourself rather than live with your parents. And and you do a great job in the book of just walking through all the complications that followed uh-huh. that decision. I had never thought about how many things might change. You had a great story about all you wanted was just a can of pork and beans for dinner. Walk us through yeah. what that took in those early days to even figure out how to have that. Well, yeah, and I, it is funny, and I fortunately was always able to laugh at some of the things that were happening. Um, some of them were frustrating at the point in time, but um, yeah, I wanted a can of pork and beans, and I went in the cupboard in my kitchen, and you know, I guess I figured I could find a pan, I could uh, get it heated up, but I, when I reached for the the can of pork and beans, I grabbed a can, and then I realized I didn't have the slightest idea if it was pork and beans, green beans, tomato sauce, or anything else that came in a can, and just decided to open one up, which happened to be green beans, and put it down the garbage disposal and uh, tried another one, and I came across the pork and beans right away. You know, so. and, and one of the complications of this, which you, you didn't make a big deal about, you covered it almost in an aside a bit later, you had also lost your sense of smell at the point when this bullet cut through your head. That That is true. Um, and it took me several, I gosh, two or three months to even figure that out. Um, I guess I, I say that I had always had allergies and maybe I didn't have such a good sense of smell in the first place, but I did absolutely, uh, I, I was able to smell stuff up until the shooting and uh, yeah, that, that didn't help. <laughs> so, so many things just so complicated. I mean, everything from from when your mail came that you had to, to ask people for help to figure out what was a bill and, you know, how, how to even walk down the street. You ended up seeking more intensive help at a rehabilitation center in Arkansas. This is called Lion's World, just a, a fascinating place. Um, and you make it clear in the book that you really resisted that at first. Why was that something that you didn't you didn't want to just go for? Well, um, you know, I, I wanted to learn what I needed to learn. I, I, as you mentioned, I was committed to returning to the life with my young kids, um, to my job, which had been going very well, um, you know, immediately preceding this. And I really had a great life. I, I really, really wanted to get back to my life. Um, my big issue with Lions World in the, the state of Missouri was that they wanted me to to commit to a year. They were willing to pay um, in terms of occupational therapy for me to go down there, but they wanted a one-year commitment. And with the kind of work I did, which was um, client, I, I was a management consultant. It was client-based work and a fairly entrepreneurial setting. Um, I didn't think my my professional life would be there after a year. I didn't think my relationship with my kids would be there after a year. Mm. Um, That was really the only issue. I wanted to learn it all. I was in a big, big hurry. You were in a hurry. I mean, they ultimately let you do this in less than a year. And and it sounds like you learned so much in the months that you were there. Yeah, the the state of Missouri was very flexible. I've got to, you know, I... 
gotta say i really appreciate it um but yeah we agreed on some things i needed to learn a certain skill level with you know orientation and mobility which is walking with a cane um with braille and with um what i'll call a talking computer an adaptive computer for people that are blind or visually impaired hmm. those were the skills i really needed for my life um to go back to work to you know manage a household and um we, we agreed that if I reached a certain proficiency that the state of Missouri would be happy and I'd be happy and um, whenever that was. Hmm. We're talking today to Bill Johnson, uh, also known as William M. Johnson, the author of Snowblind, Recovering After a Random Shooting. It's a, it's a great memoir that just gives the step-by-step of, of what happened as he relearned to live life as a blind man. Now, Bill, there's this really interesting scene when you're there at this rehabilitation center in Arkansas. You have a roommate, uh, Majid, um, and he's much more of a pessimist about your situation. He says, Mr. Johnson, you are so naive. People do not like blind people. They will never give you your job back. Employers are scared of blind people at work. They think they can't do anything, that they just create problems. Blind people don't fit in with other workers, and we cost them money. They can't even get rid of us because of the government. Now, in your case, he was absolutely wrong about your employer. You returned to this career. Do you think he had a point about the bigger picture? Um, just just a bit of a point. Um, really, I, that's not been my experience at all. Um, you know, I, I, as I said, I was very fortunate. I, I was employed with um, KPMG. And, you know, although in my mind it sometimes appeared that there was a few hurdles to getting back to work, um, in general, they were they welcomed me to come back and mm-hmm. um, pursue my same career or others. And, and what I wanted to do was come back into the same job. Do you um, think you had an I, advantage there that you'd already <clears throat> been doing this job? You know, you had an MBA, um, you're doing well in your field versus somebody who maybe was blinded at age five. That's correct. Um, you know, and I, I do recognize I had a lot of advantages in life. <clears throat> Excuse me. I had, a you know, a, a, an education, a career. I had grown up and lived for 40 years seeing the world, and I, I did have a life to kind of go back to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still disagree that people who are um, blind or visually impaired, and, and, and there is a whole range. I mean, I, I am totally blind, but I soon learned many, many, many of the people that we may consider to be blind are actually visually impaired and have um, to some degree of functional vision. Mm-hmm. Functional vision. Um, there are many, many, many um, skills that blind people can learn, um, jobs that blind people can do, uh, call center being one of them. Um, you know, as I worked and, and visited clients again around uh, North America, I, I would often, you know, the, the people that were my clients, <coughs> excuse me, would, um, you know, often introduce me to somebody at their company who was also blind. And, hmm. um, you know, and it was, it was, heartwarming to me it was you know great i was happy to meet somebody else and so no i i kind of disagree i think um majid had had some experiences in his life that um he blamed on his blindness that might have been due to some other things but Mm -hmm. uh 
Speaking of your work at KPMG, uh, we got a call from uh, a woman named Adriana who says that she used to know you. You guys were colleagues <laughs> there. She says she visited you at the hospital, um, and she told us that she thinks of you and your wife, Jenny, often, and she was excited to hear that you were on, and, and she hopes that you were well. And that's actually a perfect transition to something that we have to talk about with you, and yeah. that's the love story here. If you'd never <clears throat> been blinded in this shooting, you would have never met your wife, Jenny. She worked for the neurosurgery department at Barnes. When did things shift from her being this this friendly voice at your doctor's <laughs> office to being your love interest? Well, it was a couple months after I was home from the hospital. Um, yeah, she was a, uh, I think called a nurse coordinator. She was a representative from the Department of Neurosurgery that, you know, came around to visit me in the room, um, somewhat like rounds, but she was not a doctor. Um, and, uh, you know, as I described, she, you know, with just a very friendly voice, she first knocked on the door and I said, who is it? And she said, Virginia. And my response was, oh, Virginia, is there really, there really is a Santa Claus. And uh, I bet she loved that. You know, <laughs> yeah, and I, I was kind of a cut up and, and, and she tolerated that. But yeah, she was always honest with me. Um, she was certainly friendly and helpful. And then she was the um, contact I was given with the Department of Neurosurgery. So we, we had reasons to be in touch with, with each other, and I just always found her. I always look forward to talking to her. Hmm. I, uh, I kind of, I don't know that I had this in mind, so I'm not going to say I tricked her, but um, one day when I was home and wondering what I was going to do for dinner, and I got to thinking, and I, I ended up, and, and maybe the thought to call her came first, but um, I, I was talking to her on the phone and I just bluntly asked her, what are you doing for dinner tonight? And uh, she kind of sputtered in surprise and one, you know, we, we ended up going out to dinner and, you know, one thing uh, led to another and uh, mm -hmm. by Thanksgiving we were seeing each other pretty regularly. Well, so it wasn't just love. You also found or re-found your love of skiing. And your descriptions of <laughs> skiing blind are some of the best parts of this book. Um, it's so amazing how this works. And, and yet, as I'm just blown away by what you were able to do skiing, you say the guides for blind skiers actually have the harder job. If you, if you could just briefly explain to our listeners how this works. <laughs> um, well, thank you. Um, yeah, I, so I had... Somehow, in 1990, or 1980, two or three, uh, one of the few ski trips I had taken since college, um, I apparently had seen a blind skier in Aspen, and hmm. it's kind of amazing. So um, I, I made some phone calls, and um, Ginny um, and I went out to Aspen, and it was actually over Valentine's Day the, the, just the following year. So basically, a guide skis behind me and says, left, right, left, right, you know, hold your next right, hold it, hold it, hold it, left, right, left, right. And, um, you know, skis very closely to me, right on my ski tips, in fact, and uh, has to think ahead, has to look at the other people that are out there and plan our course down the uh, mountain. One of the, one of the guides who I early on loved skiing with the most used to always say um, that it was like remote control skiing hmm. for him. And, and he would, you know, further say, you know, if I can lend you my eyes and we both have a great time, why wouldn't I do this? And, uh, hmm. you know, it is, 
It is just a kick. I get such joy out of it. It's unbelievable. Well, these skiing passages, I want to recommend anybody who's interested in skiing to read how Bill describes this. It's just great. And and Bill, in our final minute, um, you close this book with a single sentence that's so full of hope and joy. You write, there is always a little light. Is that the thought that you want to leave readers with in, in this memoir of your life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I say this is a matter of um, living life on life's terms for me. And I hope that anybody that reads the book can, you know, gain a little strength and then hope and a little courage to go on and do, you know, what what needs to be done, what's in front of you to take care of yourself. And uh, if some people can benefit from reading this, I'll, I'll just be thrilled. Mm-hmm. Well, highly recommend this book. Um, you can it, It's set for release next week. Pre-orders are already available. Uh, that's at authorwilliamjohnson.com slash book. We'll also get a link on our website, stlpr.org. Bill, I couldn't help but wonder, are you planning to do an audiobook version for people who are blind? I have been um, editing the audiobook version, you know, over the last two or three days, which was great preparation for me. For to do your show to remind myself what what all I had written, and I I will say if I could throw it in, sure. There are several copies at the Webster Groves Bookshop here in Webster Groves, Missouri. So oh, that's uh, that's terrific. So people can get this today. They don't need to even do the pre-order if they're if they're dying to go out and get a copy. That's correct. And if too many people go get it today, my phone will ring and I've got more at home. So I'll get them up there. That is great. Well, Bill Johnson, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing this story. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.